back again. Um, I have slide envy from our last speaker, unfortunately, mine are a bit more plain than that. Um, so I'm going to actually carry on from a little bit of what Akon's been speaking about um, into post-cardiac arrest management. And I've actually, right from the word go, I've got made my first mistake in the first slide because we're not talking about in the PICU. We're talking about what you can do again in the context or in the setting of the patient coming into your emergency department while you're waiting for the um, retrieval team to respond. So um, it's really more geared towards that side of things. Um, I'm very glad I wasn't on that retrieval. That was just discussed. But uh, pediatric cardiac arrest is thankfully fairly rare, is very traumatic for everybody involved, uh, not least the patient, and uh, um, unfortunately has very poor outcomes still, as um, uh, most cardiac arrest patients uh, still have. I've just made a, put together a very general sort of case just to, to pick up a few things to sort of introduce it, but we're really going to go through a systems approach to how you can potentially improve the outcomes. So we have an eight-year-old male, previously fit and well, who's had a four-day history of fever, quite high fevers, parents are a bit concerned. Sore throat, generalized aches and pains, later in the duration of the illness, complaining of upper abdominal pain and not looking overly well. Seen by the GP initially, who felt they had a sort of a strep throat type picture, antipyretics and antibiotics. Day or two later then, the child's really not making any progress at all, no improvement with the um, treatment from the GP, they're lethargic. Parents notice that their work of breathing has really, or they say, oh, his breathing sounds funny. Um, he's just hot all the time and he's an awful color. Um, and while they're getting ready to bring him up to hospital, he collapses at home uh, unresponsive. And the parents who are very clued in, well um, uh, uh, aware parents check and realize that he's not breathing and they start CPR and call 999. So the paramedic team is there within 10 minutes, which is very impressive. Um, and they confirm cardiac arrest and continue CPR and they confirm that it's a PEA arrest with a sinus bradycardia uh, on the monitor. They've, they ventilate manually, try to insert an LMA, uh, they're not going to try and intubate. They put an IO line in, give some adrenaline, no response and essentially scoop and run, which happens quite often, uh, and come into the emergency department with CPR ongoing, phoning ahead uh, as a standby call. So everybody in the emergency department in the nearest DGH immediately goes into overdrive and panic, as often happens. But actually they do a really good job of uh, managing things. So in the ED, resuscitation is continued again with confirming that there was loss of circulation. The patient is intubated by the emergency or the anesthetic team. They give a fluid bolus through the IO, which is still working well, and continued running down the normal algorithm. And the very astute um, uh, anesthetic reg notices that between the fourth, uh, after the fourth dose of adrenaline, while they're still doing CPR, the end tidal CO2 monitor suddenly spikes and starts reading a much higher level. And when they get to the next pulse check, they confirm that there's return of spontaneous circulation. But the observations are somewhat like this. So you've got a tachycardia, you've got a BP of 55 over 20 when it actually measures on the non-invasive, and the best SATs they can pick up are around 88, and the child is not making any significant respiratory effort. 
The pupils are sluggishly still reactive. They're about size four. And they've got a venous blood gas, which is alarmingly similar to the one that was described in the last talk. So um, I think we've covered that already, but it's not good. I think everything's wrong with that gas is uh, one way to put it, as, one of the, as somebody else said. But there's a significant severe lactic acidosis uh, with a little bit of um, increased CO2 as well. Actually, the CO2 is a reflection of how well they've been managing to ventilate the patient. So um, a few other investigations carried out. Chest x-ray shows significant cardiomegaly, and the lungs look very wet. So what do we think about this sort of patient? What do you think is the most likely diagnosis? Any thoughts? So it's in fact probably an infective myocarditis. Could be um, some kind of Coxsackie virus, maybe flu, any number of those sorts of things. So um, that would be top, or certainly top of your list. One of the comments about that sort of patient is you're very lucky to actually have been able to manage to resuscitate that patient. And that's uh, probably reflective of good quality C and early CPR. So what I want to go into, we're not gonna run an, uh, an APLS course. Um, what do you need to think about is, what are your priorities now? So you have got return of spontaneous circulation in this patient, and everybody's pumped up about that, and it's great, you know, you've got the patient back, but that's really only the start of the process. And there is a lot of work that needs to be done to give this child the best opportunity of a good outcome, which is very rare, unfortunately. So you need to be thinking straight away, how can I optimize this child? And again, it's to try and encourage you guys to think about what way you need to do this. You'll obviously be talking to the local PICU, the retrieval team for further advice, but what sort of things can you implement yourself in, uh, in your emergency department or by transferring up into your own e or ICU or even adult ICU? So, not surprisingly, having no circulation for a, for a period of time and then suddenly reperfusing everything, even if you're reperfusing it quite badly, is not good for your body. And that results in what has generally become known as post-cardiac arrest syndrome. And there are three main components that we would include in thinking about that, the three priorities uh, of management. So the first of all is the brain injury. Uh, the second part is the subsequent myocardial dysfunction. And then thirdly, you've got a systemic, so you've got to think about the rest of the body uh, in to total body ischemia, and then reperfusing all the organ systems is gonna cause a significant uh, inflammatory response, okay? But on top of that, don't forget about what caused the arrest in the first place, because there are other, maybe other treatment priorities to think about with that. Um, and this child, uh, we'll talk about myocardial dysfunction, but that's gonna to be top of your list of one of the important things to get on top of. Okay, so quickly gonna talk a little bit of pathophysiology about each of those. So the brain injury is the main cause of significant mortality, but also morbidity in um, survivors. Uh, survivors who um, make it through with a bad functional outcome after cardiac arrest. And this is an area of a lot of research at the minute. You have people who you've probably heard of the paramedic study that was done recently, looking at adrenaline dosing. And it was totally misinterpreted in the newspapers by saying adrenaline causes brain injury. Well, that's nonsense, it doesn't. Adrenaline resuscitates patients, but we can't tell which ones are going to get bad brain injuries yet. So uh, we still should use adrenaline in resuscitation. Um, but it's the, it's the, particularly in children where they have healthy 
hearts. You resuscitate them, but they have suffered a significant hypoxic ischemic injury to the brain. So, and it's a, there's multiple reasons to why the brain doesn't tolerate ischemia well. It triggers neuronal necrosis and apoptosis. When the circulation is so sluggish, the microcirculation gets clogged up with little thrombi, and then you get a hyperemic reperfusion trying to get its way through that. You end up with cerebral edema and potentially raised ICP. And on top of that, the, the autoregulation goes out the window, so the brain has no concept or is unable to regulate its, own, its circulation again. So you can have clinical manifestations anywhere from coma and reduced level of consciousness through seizures, uh, myoclonic episodes, you can have um, uh, that's meant, sorry, cerebral infarcts and spinal infarcts, and eventually, or most severely, brainstem death. The important thing about post-cardiac arrest brain injury is that it, it occurs over hours to days after return of circulation. So in some ways, that makes you think, well, actually, there's a big window of opportunity to try and intervene here and see if you can optimize things and try and slow down that process. It's not an all, all immediate um, insult. It progresses, so therefore it should be interventionable. It's also exacerbated by things like fever, uncontrolled seizures, hyperglycemia, oxidative stress. So we'll, that kind of gives you the answers for some of the questions later on, so you might want to write those down now. Um, okay, secondary, secondly, myocardial dysfunction. This, if it's seen early after post-cardiac arrest, is associated with a poor functional or poor survival outcome and poor functional outcome. So it tends to happen very early. It usually hits its nadir around eight hours following post uh, or return of circulation. Children tend to get it less severely than adults. And again, that's probably a reflection of underlying healthy myocardium as opposed to elderly patients on a Western diet with dodgy coronaries. So they don't get it as severely. That means if it is, um, if it is problematic, it is very severe. And actually within 24 hours, you can come back to nearly normal function again. So it does recover quite quickly. And again, more so in children. Depends on the underlying pathology. Our case, I wouldn't expect his myocardial function to come back to normal very quickly because that's part of the reason why he's had this episode in the first place with his myocarditis. So you need to be thinking along those lines. But even in that 24-hour period, that's enough to cause significantly further damage to the patient. So again, you need to intervene and try and stop that. It's a global stunning phenomenon. It's not as in adults to do with coronary circulation and ischemia, things like that. Um, so that's why it will recover, but it will re respond and is sensitive to appropriate vasoactive support, or appropriate inotropic support. So you can fix it if you use the right medications. Again, depending on how severe it is. And we've had a uh, discussion of a case already where they need a huge amount of inotropic support and are eventually on to ECMO. So that's, that's how severe it can be. <coughs> and then everything else, basically. So every other organ system in the body gets, uh, becomes ischemic and hypoxic and then suddenly gets uh, perfused again. Um, so it's the most severe form of shock you can have, really. And that's only partially restored during CPR. So the body then there, there's a compensatory mechanism to strip as much oxygen out of the blood as possible, which means then when you get circulation back, even if you're giving high flow oxygen, there's a significant oxygen debt to recover. So the patient is still hypoxic, uh, um, essentially during that recovery phase. And you've got the cardiac dysfunction on top of that, so your blood pressure or your perfusion may not be that great. On top of all of that, it, fair, it basically triggers off 
every immune uh, and coagulation cascade in the body, so you can end up, you essentially end up in a, uh, a system, or sorry, you end up in a, a circumstance that looks like SIRS. It looks almost like sepsis, but with that initial cardiac dysfunction. And you can get adrenal suppression, and you can get impaired vasoregulation. So again, it's a dynamic process. You go from a cardiogenic looking picture, sometimes to a very SIRS-y septic sort of looking picture uh, because of the reperfusion injury. So, and just kind of looking at the different phases, if you're going to get a, if you're planning interventions or plan, looking at uh, how to intervene in this sort of, a, you, there are periods, you've got the immediate early sort of phase where you should be limiting ongoing damage uh, from that um, reperfusion uh, syndrome. Um, and then there's some slightly longer term things before you get into the recovery period. At all times, you're looking at preventing recurrence of the, whatever the initial insult was, but you're not really getting into prognostic sort of um, goals until after about 72 hours. So early on, it's limiting damage as much as possible. So how are we going to do that? What sort of things? Um, thinking about our case that we had already, and some of this has already been covered in the in the last talk. This child was intubated in the emergency department by the local team. <coughs> What recommendations would you give to them when you're putting the tube in? What would you think of? And we've sort of discussed that already. What type of tube? Cuffed, yeah. So this child is probably going to develop ARDS or at least pulmonary edema, so you're going to have high pressure ventilation. So an uncuffed tube is going to be uh, difficult. Put it orally. You don't have to put it in nasally. They'll probably bleed everywhere if you do, if they're coagulopathic. So an oral cuffed, appropriately placed ET tube is essential. Um, afterwards, if the child, uh, if the patient stays in the same condition that they are. So the right size, the right distance in, not too far, not down, one, down into the right main bronchus, so check it with a chest x-ray. You've got return of circulation and sometimes, now in this case the patient was tubed before that happened, but occasionally you're still ventilated because intubation is less on the resource algorithms now, you may be trying to ventilate through a laryngeal mask and you then have to intubate the patient after return of circulation. So again, I really, I really like that term, the least uncardiac un stable induction agents you can use is a very good way of putting it. So you want to use something that's going to maintain your blood pressure, maintain your, or your heart rate, so things like ketamine and uh, the appropriate um, muscle relaxant. You really don't want to have any vagal stimulation while you're tubing the patient, which will make them bratty, and they will just spiral out of control again. So um, think about things you can give to maintain that. Ketamine's good, but also think about atropine. So this patient is now in your emergency department, intubated, return of circulation, blood pressure's pretty awful, SATs are not good, you're gonna ventilate them, you're, you're ventilating, your anesthetic team are there. Goals and targets for ventilation. So what we're trying to do now essentially, unless the patient is grossly unstable, as the one which was discussed previously, and they may well, their ventilation may well get worse as uh, any lung injury gets worse, you want to aim for a very set standard set of criteria to help with cerebral um, perfusion, okay? So you want to aim for normal, a normal CO2, unless, this is a child who for some reason has an elevated CO2 chronically, where there may be some uh, young children with uh, chronic lung disease. You want to avoid really high peak pressures, as we talked about previously. So 
you're trying not to thrash the lungs completely. If you're, the lungs are so stiff and uncompliant that you can't ventilate them with pressures over that are staying under, or over, sorry, staying under 30, 32, you need to think about an alternative form of ventilation, like high frequency. You want to avoid massive tidal volumes. So small tidal volumes for small stiff, or for stiff lungs that are now filling with fluid. So six to seven, and that's as the standard sort of uh, ARDS type um, thinking. Difficulty with that is if you've got a small tidal volume and you want to ventilate to normal CO2, then you're probably gonna have to use quite a high rate and that may make it a bit challenging. So again, you have to think about carefully about your ventilation. And in the DGH emergency department, you're not gonna have access to potentially to a high frequency um, oscillator ventilator. So you try to do as much as you can with that. But those are the sort of targets you should be thinking of. And then something that's coming in more recently is don't over-oxygenate them. Now we said this child was hypoxic in high flow oxygen, but once you get them ventilated, maybe if you've got some PEEP on, um, your oxygen sats may well come up. You don't want to have sats sitting around 100. You're not likely to, but if you do, you're probably giving too much oxygen, and actually that is potentially harmful to the patient. So target your sats 92 to 96, and if it's 92, that's absolutely fine, okay? You don't have to overdo it. Use your PEEP to optimize your oxygenation without giving too much that's gonna cause mass or really high interthoracic pressures, okay? Now, sorry, this is a really wordy slide. Apologies for that. There's quite a lot to talk about. We'll come on to circulation. So our patient had was profoundly hypotensive um, for, uh, for an eight-year-old. So you need to optimize the cardiovascular status um, as soon as possible. If you have the facilities to do it, an arterial line is lovely, a central line would be lovely, but we talked earlier on, you can do this peripherally. You can use an IO needle, which the paramedics have already put in. Central line gives you a few other wee tricks like central venous oxygen measurements and things, which will tell you if you're trending in the right direction. But they're not essential, but they are useful, and they certainly will be put in when you come into uh, ICU. Um, you'll need a 12 lead uh, to try and look at if there's any underlying rhythm problem as to why the patient has arrested and echo if available. And we talked earlier on about focused cardiac ultrasound or focused echo, um, which can be very useful in these circumstances. It'll tell you, you can put the probe on and see whether you've got a big baggy failing ventricle or a big cardiac tamponade, uh, which obviously are gonna have different, or, or if you need additional fluid filling, okay? And then you want to optimize cardiovascular. So cautious fluid administration, inotropic support, because again, it's myocardial stunning. But they may develop a need for a vasopressor later on, but again, would go with adrenaline or dopamine in the first instance as that inotropic uh, start for the myocardial stunning effect. You can overdo it with vasopressors, as we said previously. Um, if you're squeezing too hard on a failing ventricle, you're actually gonna make it worse. So just be careful about that. What kind, of map, what kind of mean arterial pressure are you gonna target? Well, there isn't actually a lot of good evidence for this. There have been a lot of studies looking at, you know, reasonable or sort of normal blood pressure, elevated blood pressures. Outcomes are never really uh, definitively different. But what you do need to think about is your cerebral perfusion pressure. So if you're assuming that the brain is going to be a bit swollen and tight after this, you need to ensure that your mean arterial pressure is enough to provide decent cerebral perfusion. So you may want to push 
your map above that, and there are calculators and things that will uh, give you details for that for individual age groups. Measure your lactates. I know it, there again, there's lots of conflicting evidence about that, but generally a lactate that's going down isn't always a bad thing. Measure your urinary output so catheterize the patient. ECMO would be lovely if, uh, if it was readily available. Well, it's not lovely, but it's pretty catastrophic. But um, mechanical support isn't readily available over here, um, so we tend not to be able to put patients onto ECMO as uh, an emergency life support measure. Um, but in some areas that is possible, but it's going to be um, very, it's not going to be limited, to, or it's not going to be available in Northern Ireland, unfortunately. So, so I wanted to dwell on that hypotension a wee bit. And actually there is, it, I mean, it's like one of those things, oh, the patient's hypotensive, so we should treat that, otherwise they're going to get worse, duh. Well, actually, yeah, we like to have evidence for these things. So, um, the THAPCA trial actually was a trial to do with therapeutic hypothermia, uh, which was published a few years ago. I'll come back to that, the actual primary trial in a, few, uh, in a little minute, a minute or two. But they actually did a secondary analysis of the patients. And what they found was that any early hypotension, so if you had any significant hypotensive episodes in the first six hours after return of spontaneous circulation, um, your survival chances went down quite dramatically. All hypotension up to 70 hours wasn't associated, it's that early phase, and it didn't matter whether they were cooled or not, which is what we'll talk about in a few minutes, they all, they did, if they were hypotensive, they did worse, okay? So you had a, it's important to get on top of that and treat it as soon as you can. So you should be looking at getting peripheral inotropes started or centrally if you have the facilities to do that or interosseous, okay? So neuro-wise, disability, since we're going through the ABCD kind of approach. So again, we've talked about a little bit of this already, but you really want to institute what we would describe as neuroprotective strategies, assuming that there's gonna be some cerebral edema and there'll be potentially raised ICP. So don't keep the patient lying flat. If their blood pressure will tolerate it, and because you've started your peripheral inotropes, it will, um, you can set them up, okay? If that's a Potential trauma, obviously you want to protect the C-spine, but you can put them up 30 degrees head up. It will improve venous drainage. It will reduce the risk of cerebral edema getting worse. It'll potentially reduce ICP. And push your cerebral perfusion pressure with your cardiac support. Keep them normocapnic, as we've already said. But on top of that, think about your sedation and potentially paralysis. So in some district general hospitals, it's one of the things that will happen is the patient will be moved to uh, a theater area where a lot of this uh, will have happened. And they may be kept asleep with a volatile anesthetic agent on an anesthetic machine. That's potentially not good for cerebral um, perfusion because it causes cerebral vasodilation. So we really should be thinking about sedation and we tend to advocate a benzodiazepine plus or minus an opiate the benzo will help reduce seizures, which is important, um, and has, doesn't have such a significant effect on cerebral blood flow. On top of that, you don't want them shivering, things like that, so sedate properly, plus or minus muscle relaxant. The difficulty is if you paralyze the patient, you're masking potentially seizures. You need to look out for that. Now, in the intensive care setting, we'll use uh, sort of mini EEG type things or have an EEG, formal EEG done, but otherwise you're just gonna have to look for any signs of seizures ongoing 
in the paralyzed patient. So regularly check the pupils, look for any spikes of, of, of heart rate and, and blood pressure. And if there, are if there is evidence of seizures, treat them. So you're probably on benzodiazepines already, but phenytoin possibly. Very, very cautious use of thiopentone for refractory seizures uh, because it is extremely cardiodepressant. It's not good for your blood pressure. So only if you absolutely have to. Okay. And then kind of some of the other points I want to get to again, sort of again, thinking about the things that you can intervene on. Temperature regulation, environment and everything else essentially, but temperature regulation. So post-cardiac arrest, even out of hospital arrest where they've been lying somewhere and they're cold because they've been lying on the floor and somebody's been trying to do CPR. Once the children get into hospital post-cardiac arrest, they frequently will spike a fever. Um, and it's much more common in children than in adults. And there are multiple studies that show that if you have a, I mean, different, looking at different endpoints, but essentially if you have a temperature greater than 37.8, is associated with increased um, in hospital mortality following cardiac arrest. And as we know, pyrexia is more common in children. So you need to aggressively treat pyrexia, okay? Don't let them get hot. Which leads to the next natural question, well then, do we just cool them, keep them cold? And anecdotal stories of people surviving in frozen lakes and things are come bouncing out at that point. So this has actually been looked at. It's been looked at in adults a lot. Uh, there are a couple of big studies, but unusually there is actually a big study carried out in children, which was called the FAPCA. And there was one or two people involved with that, um, trying to, because recruiting adequate numbers uh, for a study like this needs to be carried out over multiple different, um, I'm not one of them by the way, I wish I was, but it um, uh, needs to be carried out over many, many centers because the numbers are quite small. Uh, sorry, that probably doesn't um, project very well. But the results were essentially, uh, they looked, so it, so it shows you they were randomized to hypothermia or normothermia and they looked at survival with a good functional score. So there's a, the VABS2 is a, um, a neurobehavioral functional score. Uh, they looked at overall death and they also looked at how their functional score changed as a secondary outcome changed over uh, the first year of their survival. So looked at a whole lot of different endpoints. And the take home message was that there was no significant uh, between group difference in primary outcome, which was survival at one year with a good neurobehavioral outcome between the hypothermic and the normothermic group. And they were, the hypothermia was targeted to 33, 34, and normothermia was uh, 36. All-cause mortality at one year was no difference, and there was no significant difference in the neurobehavioral changes or the scoring changes over the year of their, of the, of the, for the survivors. So the take-home message now, people have gone into it in more subgroup analysis and they're trying to tease out that there might be something uh, with regards to maybe slightly cooler, but it's non-significant at the minute, so we can't really accept it as, as uh, um, reliable uh, treatment. So what you should do, the take-home message to me is, treat the pyrexia, but you don't need to cool them, but you have to keep them normothermic. So using those cooling um, blankets and cooling equipment that everybody then invested in, is still useful, but you just maintain them at normothermia. Okay.
And again, those are things that can be acted on in the emergency department or in the DGH. So sometimes we'll arrive to uh, receive or to pick up a patient on retrieval who's post-cardiac arrest, who's cold, and there's a warming blanket on them. And it's a natural, you know, people, you get a child and they, one of the natural things is avoid hypothermia. Well, we're trying to avoid hypothermia here, but you don't want to heat them up. So don't worry about warming blankets and things like that. Okay. Other simple things, glucose control. So hyperglycemia is bad, um, and it's very common in um, pediatric patients in PICU. Um, it's common after cardiac arrest. Again, you don't need to be tight control with it. So there are many studies looking at that. The winter guest one is more a, a, an overall PICU study looking at hypo and hyperglycemia and outcomes. Um, so you really want to control your blood sugar, keeping it eight to 10 at absolutely the most, and 10 is probably pushing it a little bit. And you should be at that point thinking about starting some insulin, but you don't need to be sitting really tight with it because all that essentially does is risks you developing a hypoglycemia, which will be more damaging as well. So, but again, these are things you could potentially think about starting uh, while you're waiting for the transport team to arrive. So don't let them get ridiculously hyperglycemic. We mentioned adrenal insufficiency previously as well. That seems to be common after cardiac arrest. Uh, the adrenal glands are pumping out everything they can uh, following the um, post-arrest syndrome. But there's no evidence for a benefit in giving hydrocortisone in the post-arrest period. I would say, unless you have refractory hypotension, and then I think it's absolutely, I would definitely go ahead. But just as a routine thing, oh, this patient's arrested, I'm gonna fire some hydrocortisone in. Post return of spontaneous circulation, there isn't evidence to support that. So you don't need to worry about that. Um, there, is a, there is a good reason for doing all these things. As we say, um, prognosis is generally bad in post-cardiac arrest. And the PICU care subsequently can be very prolonged for some of these patients. And one of the big difficulties is knowing which patients are potentially going to do well. And there are so many factors involved in that to do with their pre-morbid condition, how good the resuscitation was. But a lot of those post-resuscitation factors we know are modifiable, which we can do. Uh, but this is, an on, this is a, a, um, a significant difficulty uh, because we don't know what we, we have no idea, not necessarily just for survival, but we don't have any prognostic scoring um, way of um, predicting what their functional outcome is gonna be after all of this as well. So there are a lot of studies, go, there are, well, there are several studies going on at the minute, actually, the NEPAC and NeuroPAC uh, going through the PICANET uh, um, system, which is the National Pediatric Intensive Care Audit. So this is something that's gonna be looked at in a lot of detail, and that might then guide the duration and or um, uh, uh, suitability of supportive measures after initial resuscitation. That's more for us in PICU. Some of the things that are jumping in as well are like early CT brain might be able to be interpreted with some information for regarding prognosis. So again, that can be something that if the patient is stable enough, you might be able to go and do that. But if they're not, it's not the end of the world. Okay. So again, what I've tried to talk about or what I wanted to, um, to bring to you really are things that you can do in, uh, in the DGH setting where you've resuscitated a patient successfully, which is always a great achievement.
but then think of all the things you can do potentially to try and improve the outcome. So just summarizing it all, pre-PICU measures that can be helpful would be trying to achieve, trying to ventilate the patient well, avoid overdoing it with the oxygen and keep the CO2 normal, avoid that early hypotension, so get in there with your peripheral inotropes, give the right sedation, do your ICP managements and your seizure controls and normothermia and normoglycemia. I, was, I haven't mentioned electrolytes and things like that because it was sort of covered in the, last, uh, in the last talk, but again, you'll be wanting to keep a close eye on your sodium uh, as well for things like diabetes insipidus post-arrest uh, and your urine output. Okay. So...